Lord, uh, we are under your word again, and it is, we are once again cognizant of the fact that creation, existence, reality, has been, are, are formed through your word, that we are cognizant of the fact that Jesus Christ is the living word of God, the eternal Logos, who has come to bring us out of, from darkness into light through your word. And we are cognizant of the fact that you sanctify us through your word. Father, it is, it, that is how important your word is. So Lord, we pray that as we sit under it, as we listen to it, Father, we pray that may your spirit stir something in us. May your spirit persuade our thinking. May your spirit, Lord, expand our understanding of you so that our feelings and actions will follow suit. May Christ be glorified. May Christ be revealed and Christ be glorified through these, through these words. All these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So for those of us um, who are relatively new here, we've been studying Genesis for the last um, couple of months. And we are continuing our studies in the, in, in the, in the, in, continuing our sermon series on Genesis. Um, I think we're going to take a break from Genesis um, after this week because it's Christmas season. I think we're going to come back to it after uh, in the, in the new year. But so um, we're going. We're in chapter six right now, and chapter six is about the flood story. It's about Noah, right? And we're going to set up the preliminary land, like lay of the land, before we get into Noah, which we will do after we come back from, you know, the holiday season. So, I work with really young people, right? Younger than yourselves, I think. Um, and, and, you know, for some reason on Friday, rather than going home, like a good husband and dad should, or a good pastor should, we should go to small groups and stuff. Um, I ended up just having a long discussion with my 20-something paralegals, right? Um, about life, about relationships, about various things. They told me I'm a very wise man. It's like I came down from the mountaintops to, to tell them about the truth. Um, so I was, I was, I was at a really good, meaningful conversation with my 20-something paralegals. And during my conversation with them, I realized, like, I, just, uh, I, I, was, I was struck with this awareness that the, the, par- the worldview of these paralegals, who are not Christian, by the way, and the Christian and the Christians' worldview is vastly different. Specifically, um, these paralegals' understanding of what human beings are, the nature of man, the nature of human being, is vastly different from the Christians' understanding of the nature of human being. I think the world the world assumes right that human beings are reasonable, neutral creatures, right? That if we what we need is just if we just have the right information, right? We just have the right information that we can make good decisions that will lead to flourishing. Right? So that's the assumption of the world out there, right? That human beings are unbiased, neutral, reasonable human beings. That if you just give us right information, right, then we can be morally better, that we can make better decisions. Right? Then we can make society better. So what is wrong is, is incorrect information. That's what society says. Right? And there's a theory behind modern education, for example. Modern education, right? 
says if you just educate children with the, like if you give the children like good information right they'll they'll grow up to be you know responsible adults that's the assumption of science right so people who idolize science thinks science can solve everything because scientific information will result in once again human beings being able to make better more realistic choices so that's the assumption of the world right Human beings are reasonable, neutral creations, right? But that is contrary to the biblical view of human beings. The biblical view of human beings is are not is not that people are people. It's not that people can people are. The biblical view of human being is man is not a reasonable, neutral creature. Man, they would the Bible would say. It's a very, we are very impressionable creature. Man, the Bible says, is really, is, 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 we, are, we are subject to the influential forces out in the world. We are not people who make independent rational choices by ourselves. But in fact, we are people who are influenced to make certain choices for ourselves. The worldview is we can make rational choices on our own. The Bible says no. Man is not about man, man is not reasonable. Man is really about about the influences in their life in his or her life. Depending upon what or who or what influences you, right? That, you, that your life is really depend depend upon who or what will influence you. It is a matter of influence. And we can see this in a couple of examples. And first example is, um, first example is, there's this woman named Beatrice Webb. And for those of you who don't know, she's the woman who, one of the founders of the London School of Economics. The London School of Economics is one of the major, one of the major premier economic schools in the world, right? And she founded the London School of Economics in the late 1800s, early 19, early 1900s. And her assumption, and the reason why she started that school was that English society at the time was deteriorating, right? That there were corruption in government, people were just, like, just very debasing and cruel. And she founded that school with the assumption that if she educated the young person with the, with the best information, then these young people will end up transforming society. But at the end of her life, after years of educating young people, what she realized was people who, students who graduated from that school did not become, you know, better members of society. In fact, these guys, these people, these young men became the ruling class that added to the problem of society rather than solving it. Does the assumption that the right information will lead to correct behavior, that's false. Because she's saying, Right for information is not enough to curtail the impulse of greed and selfishness inside the human heart. Even if you give a child the best information, that information is not enough to cure the drive of sin inside human beings' heart. Human beings are not reasonable creatures who can make independent decisions for ourselves. We are impressionable being creatures who are easily influenced by the forces around us and by the forces inside of us. It is not about, the question is not about, the, about whether you're influenced or not, right? 
The biblical question, it's not a matter of whether you're being influenced. The question is, what or who is influencing you? Once again, the biblical solution of man is, it's not whether man is, man is being influenced, but who is influencing you? Man. And this we can say, we, and this we can, and, and so in the Bible, there are three major influencing factors in a human being's heart. Number one, as we talked about Genesis last, last week, Genesis chapter four, one of the major influences of your life is the, is the power of sin within you. God warns Cain, if you do what is right, I will accept your offering, but if you do not do what is right, Specifically, if you are ignorant of God, and therefore that ignorance will lead you to incorrect behavior, then that incorrect understanding of God and incorrect behavior will lead to your sin, will lead to the sin that is in you overpowering you. God's warning to Cain is, if you're not careful, there is a beast called sin within you, and if you're not careful, that sin will overtake you. One of the clear influences of our lives is the power of sin within you. And if you live a life that is ignorant of God, I guarantee you that power will overcome, will overtake you and it will drown you. And that is very true. I'll give you an example. I was reading the Gospel Coalition. I love the Gospel Coalition. All respectable pastors should. I think Pastor Wood and I go to Gospel Coalition every day. And there were these two great articles this week that influenced the sermon. And one of the articles was about this book review that the Gospel Coalition, you know, wrote about. And the book was is called the book review. The book the book title of the book that they reviewed is called "Gay Girl, Gay Girl, Good God," right? The story of who I was. And who God always had been. And the, per, and the author's name is Jackie Hill Perry. So as the book suggested, um, Jackie Hill Perry, um, from, from her early years on her childhood, identified herself as gay, as lesbian. right? And the book is about her journey from identifying herself as, homo, as homosexual and into a Christian understanding about who she is and about her sexuality, right? And the premise of the book is very interesting. And when, in the review of the book, and she, she's quoted in the review, and, and, and in, that, in the quote she says, the reason I became, that I identified myself as gay in the past is not because, you know, I had a neglectful dad, which she did, and it's not only because I was abused, sexually abused, which she had been, but she says the reason why I identified myself as gay was because of sin inside me. She says the abuse that she suffered and the dad that neglected her exaggerated her, 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 her sin. But she says if you look, if she looks back about on her life, there was an influence of sin that is within her. And these other factors just exaggerated this sin within her, within her, within her spirit. And she goes on to say, she says, 
The reason why I identify myself as gay, the reason why I choose to live in sin, she says. If you look, if I, if I look back, she said, it's because I had a very deep understanding of my needs, but I had a very shallow understanding of God. She's saying, I gave in to my sinful impulses, which were exaggerated by her, by her past, by her abuses and stuff. But she said that the, at the core of my sin is this attitude where I had a deep understanding of my needs, but a shallow understanding of God. And she says, the more I understood about God, the more my desire came into, came into perspective the more of my desire become in line with the truth. She says she was drowning in sin because of a shallow understanding of God. And if you read her book, the book is really all about praising God for who He is because knowing God for who He is helped her overcome her sin. If you have a shallow understanding of God, you will be imprisoned to your sin. Look, and you can, you can, and you can see that happening in our church, right? People come to our church, and because of, because of these, like, passionate sermons of mine, something clicks inside them, right? And, and they, and, and, and their understanding of God starts to increase initially, right? And they start changing. They start serving, right? They start, they start Pastor Jay fan club, right? And they, and, and they seem to be committed to the church and they seem to grow, right? But after a while, your loyalty to good old Pastor Jay has an expiration date. I say the expiration date between six months to a year. And after six months to a year, because you get used to these words, because you, because people get used to coming here on Sundays. They no longer seek after God. They no longer have the knowledge of God. What started a fire in them was through these sermons. And through these sermons, they had an understanding of God. And that understanding led them to changes of behavior. And that's true. But after they get used to it. After they get used to these sermons of mine. There is no desire for God. And there is no more pursuit of His knowledge. And after, when that happens, you start to get depressed. You start to get attracted to the, to the things of the world rather than things of God. This has happened over and over and over again in this church. When you start to have a shallow understanding of God, things will overtake you. Are you suffering from depression right now? Anxiety right now? Are you, are you suffering from lust right now? I guarantee you, the cause of that problem is a shallow understanding of God. It's true. It's not because you don't have a job. It's not because life is not going your way. It's not because you don't have a boyfriend or girlfriend. It's not because of any any of that. It is simply a shallow understanding of God that that opens the door for depression, for lust, 
for discord and sin to dominate you. Do not underestimate the power of sin willing to consume you. Fight it with the correct understanding of God. A deepening of understanding of God. That's what the Bible is for. That's what Sundays are for. That's what small groups are for. That's what prayers are for. Through all these things, every single day of your life, you will have a deepening of understanding of God. Do not stay in the shallowness of your understanding. The second thing that influences you is not only your sinful proclivities, but it is the devil. Another interesting article from the Gospel Coalition. The Gospel Coalition says, who is the most influential preacher in the world? Is it John Piper? Is it Tim Keller? No, he says. The most influential preacher of the world is the devil. The devil preaches to you. The devil preaches to me. The devil is a personality. He has a mind. He has thoughts. He has plans. And he's going to impose his will on you, trying to derail you from God. God's messenger is the Bible. God's text is the Bible. Satan's text is everything in culture. What you watch, what you listen to, what you read are all his texts. And through, and all the, and through, through all these different means, his number, his message to you is, you do not need God. The same message that he preached to Adam and Eve is the same message he preached to you. You have the ability to determine what is good and good and bad for you. You don't need God. Declare your independence through all these media and means. That is what he's trying to preach to you. And brothers and sisters, unfortunately, we listen to that lie rather than the Bible. Isn't that not, isn't that not true? Just because you do not read the Bible, it doesn't mean that you're not listening to another sermon. You are listening to the sermons of the devil. I am listening to the sermons of the devil every single day. That's why Paul in Ephesians chapter 6, he said, Our struggle, our fight is not, about, not against people with flesh and bones. No, our struggle and fight is, about, is with the powers, the principality, the forces of darkness. Therefore, Paul says, put on the armor of God every single day. In other words, Paul says, the devil and the power of the world, they're coming after you. They're preaching to you. Which message are you going to listen to? Who are you going to let you, who is going to let, who are you allowed, who are you letting in to influence you? Unfortunately, I'm telling you, if you're not fellowshipping with God, you're listening to the sermons, the, the, the devil is more persuasive than God. Let's not get rid of the ideal of neutrality. You, we are never neutral. We are influenced by one thing or the other. Because we're impressionable creatures. 
there was this was some really super offensive to the American way of thinking. I am my own person, the American way of thinking says. I am the determiner of my destiny, the American person says. No, you're not. You're simply an impressionable person. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 5, I think, do not get drunk with wine. Do not let alcohol influence you, but rather be drunk with the Holy Spirit, which means let the Holy Spirit influence you, not alcohol, not anything else. Let the mind of Christ influence you. Because if you let other things influence you, it will lead to destruction. And that is exactly what is happening at the time of Noah. Let's go to, if he, let's go to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6 is perhaps the most controversial, like not controversial, but the most difficult passage of the Bible. Because it's kind of weird, right? And there are many different ideas and the, theological ideas of what the meaning of these verses mean. So let's let's go. Let's study let's study by verse by verse. Verse 1. When men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. So the most one of the most controversial debates in in Christianity is who are the sons of God that Genesis chapter 6 verse 2 is referring to? Who is, first of all, who's familiar with this passage? Raise your hand. Who knows this passage? Raise your hand. Really? Good for you, Bible readers. Right? This size. Shame on you. Right? So, Ephesians chapter 6, after, you know, the events of Genesis chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, men and women begin to multiply multiply on the earth. Right? And now verse 2 says, the sons of God, like, looked at the daughters of men, and the sons of God thought the daughters of men were really attractive. And they lusted after them and they married them, whoever they chose. The question is, who are the sons of God? Well, there are two main main, main interpretations of who the sons of God is. right? Um, and, and even the people that I sometimes, oftentimes check my sermon against disagree. The two guys that I often check my sermon against so that I can make sure that what I'm teaching you is not you know, heresy is... Um, who, who's that guy? R.C. Sproul, Pastor Wigeon's favorite, and John MacArthur, my favorite. And R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur disagree on what the, on, on who the sons of God is. So what do I do? Do I choose one or the other? No, I'll just tell you what these two men say. R.C. Sproul and the Reform camp, right? The PCA camp, the Pastor Wigeon's part of. The, the PCA camp thinks the sons of God are basically the, the descendants of Seth. If you look at Genesis chapter 4, Right after Cain killed Abel, Adam had another baby. Adam and him had another baby, and that baby was Seth. And the descendants of Seth were the righteous people, and the descendants of Cain, because they're the children of murderers, they're the unrighteous people. Right. So if you look at the New Testament, sons of God are often referred to as disciples of Christ. If you're a disciple of Christ, often the New Testament's calls call you, you the sons of God. Right. So according to that interpretation. The sons of God in Genesis chapter 6 verse 2 is, is the descendants of Seth, the righteous people, the, the people, the chosen people of God. And the, and the daughters of men were the descendants of Cain. And so what this interpretation is saying is when the, when the children of Seth, the righteous people of God, 
saw how attractive the, the unchristians were, what did they do? They burned with lust and they married them. Even though the descendants of Seth are God's chosen people, they are people created to worship and follow God. Rather than following God, they looked and they saw how attractive those women were. And so they abandoned God and followed the devices, followed the desires of their flesh. According to this interpretation, the world was messed up in, in Noah's time because the people of God, rather than following God, decided it was influenced by the lust of their flesh. And this influence caused them to abandon God and follow their flesh. Therefore, that union caused much sin. And I think that's a legitimate interpretation, right? And I think that's true. In the history of, of Christianity, from the Israelites to the, to, to the Christian church, the number, one of the number one enemies of Christian, of, of, of the church, of the people of God, is the world and its desires. Jesus says in the parable of the sowers, right? One of the ways that Satan, one of the ways that, 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 that the word of God does not bear fruit in our hearts is when the word of God, when we listen to the word of God, we, we think it's true and we gladly accept it. But our, the desires of the world, right? The thing, the cares, and concerns of life, the things of the world chokes out the word of God and prevents it from making it fruitful. And I think what Jesus is saying is similar to what is happening to the, to the people in Genesis chapter 6. Even though they're, they are called to worship God and live for Him, the loveliness of the ladies, the loveliness of what the ladies can promise, seems sweeter and better than God. So they abandon God little by little. They follow their desires, and therefore the world turns to a disaster. Be very careful, Christian, in what your eyes see. Be very careful in what what in in, in, in letting what and in, in letting the world influence you to turn away from God. Because when you compromise and turn away from God and do things the way you want to do. It will start, start, it will start to cause a chain reaction of sin in your life. That will cause destruction not only to yourself, but to your family and to the world around you. If there is a Bible verse that says Christian and non-Christian should not marry, one of the earliest verses is Genesis chapter 6 verse 2. You may think that you have power to convert the non-believer. You may think that you have the power to somehow make the unbeliever turn good. That power doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. And if you disobey God, the thing that happened in Noah's generation can happen in your life. What is the second interpretation? The Baptist interpretation. Right. Pastor Eugene's a PCA. I'm, I think I'm more of a Baptist guy. What is the Baptist interpretation? Right? 
of, of Genesis chapter two verse Genesis chapter six verse two. The sons of God, according to this interpretation, are fallen angels. Right? In Job chapter one, verse six, I think, the sons of God are described as the fallen angels. Satan and the angels that are, who are fallen, who rebelled against God, are called the sons of God. And these fallen angels, when they came into the world, they looked how attractive the daughters of men were. And these fallen angels burned with lust for them. And these fallen angels had sexual relationship with these women, and they gave birth. Then the question is, how do angels, can, angels don't have bodies, angels are light, how do they have sex? Well, the interpretation is, they either took on human form, which in the Bible, in Genesis especially, angels can take human form, or they possessed men to do their bidding, and regardless of how they did it, these demonic forces had a relationship with women, and they gave birth. Who did they give birth to? The Nephilim. Who are the Nephilim? In verse three, Nephilim is they're 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 giants. They say, right? In in in, in verse four, it says Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they were children to them. They were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So these angels had relationship with women, and their children were called the Nephilim. Nephilim are known for two things. Number one, their size. They were giants. Right? And number two, they were known, they were known for their violence. Right? The, 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 the men of old, the men of renown, which means they were famous for their violent behavior. Right? I was like researching Nephilim in, in Google, and everything you Google is true, right? In China, they found bones of giant people. Right? They say, oh, Nephilims are true because in China, they excavated, they found bones of huge human beings, right? Giant human beings, and they, and they think that's the bones of Nephilim. I don't know whether that's true, but there is archaeological evidence, supposedly, of giants roaming the world. And these people were violent. Demonic forces, what do they do? They burn with lust. And they, and, 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 they, and, and they made this world very violent. Lust and violence. That is how the devil influences humanity in this world. Lust and violence. If you look at your life, when you, the way, one of the key ways that you know that Satan is influencing you, is you become imprisoned to lust. You become imprisoned to violence. And violence is not only you physically hurting someone, but violence with your words. Violence with your comments. The discord, the destructive things that you think and say to another human being. That's all the for, also a form of violence. And that's how you know the devil is influencing you. You're prisoners of lust. You cannot not watch pornography. You cannot not overcome those thoughts. You cannot not overcome the hatred 
the inclination of violence against another human being. That's how you know the devil is influencing you. And that is what was happening in the world, right? The devil and the devil and his influence is just it, 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 it's 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 surrounding the world. So once again, let's review what is happening to people. Number one, people are rather than following God, they're letting sin influence them. And not only are they letting sin influence them, they're letting demonic forces of lust and violence influence them. So what is happening to society? Verse five. The Lord saw that the wickedness of men was great in the earth, and every intention of of every intention of the thought of his heart was evil continually. Once again, people, men and women, turn their back against God, and they, they let sin dominate them. And, once, and, 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 and demonic forces are in the world influencing people. What is the result? People are sinning all the time. Every inclination of the human heart is continuously evil. What does that mean? Every intention of the human being. The word intent here, oftentimes is, is in the Bible, is used to describe an artist. Like a potter, like a, someone who makes pot, right? And he's an artist. So every intention means, like, like imagine an artist creating something. And when you start to create something, I'm not an artist, but I would imagine it starts with the imagination. You think about what to create. And then you think about practical ways to make your imagination come true. And then you put your imagination and your plan into action to make something. That's what the Bible means, every inclination. It means from the fantasy to the practical thinking to the exercise of your practical thinking, every part of it is evil. Every part of it is destructive. Every part of it is tainted by selfish gain. From the fantasy to the practical planning to the execution of action, everything is evil. Because men and women allow sin to influence them, allow the devil and his demons to influence them. But you know what's funny? Even though the world during that time was going like, going towards hell, Jesus in Luke chapter 17, verse 27 says, even though the world was clearly messed up during the time of Noah, what do the people of Noah's time, what, what were they doing? Jesus says, even though the world clearly messed up, Jesus says, they, they were, during that time, they were eating, they were drinking, they were, they were married, they were, they were, they married wives, they were given in marriage, right? Until the flood came. So even though the world was clearly messed up and sin was dominating and everything was evil, men and women during that time thought nothing wrong with it. They were simply eating, drinking, going to weddings and getting married. They were used to the sin. They were used to the lust. They were used to the violence. They thought there was nothing wrong. They were living regular lives, even until when Noah got into that ark. They said they thought it was nothing wrong. Is that our attitude? Clearly, the world is dominated by lust. Clearly, the world is dominated by violence. Our whole entertainment industry is built on lust and violence. Isn't that not true? I was like falling asleep on Friday, and like 
you know, and I was caught up, and the movie It was on, right? Maybe because I was thinking about the sermon or something, I was looking at It, and like the end part when they were killing the devil, and I felt so dirty looking at it. The violence of that movie, the blood of that movie, the nonchalant murder that is happening in that movie. We think it's nothing wrong. We think it's natural. We eat and we drink, we get married, and we live our own happy lives. Similar things are happening here at the day of Noah. Every inclination of man was evil. So what is God's response? If you look at these verses, God's response is very interesting. I know we're all familiar with the judgment part of God's response, but but the, the response of God to the to, to the to the sin of man is very interesting. There are four major responses that that show how, what God is thinking when He sees men and women sinning like this. Verse one, the, the, the first thing that we can see, we can see the love of God. Verse three. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. What does the word contend mean? The word contend here means wanting to correct. Intervening, wanting to reprove, reproach, wanting to correct. That's what the word contend here means. What is, what is, what is this verse saying? The world is falling in, 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 a, in, a, in a hell basket. People are messed up. It is being destroyed. But what is God, is it being destructive? People are getting hurt. But what is God saying in verse three? He's, say, he's saying, I'm still sending my Holy Spirit to contend with them. Which means, He is sending His Holy Spirit to correct men, even when they are evil. He is sending His Holy Spirit to correct them. To change them, to remind them, don't do this, go a different way. Even men and their badness, God is still intervening, trying to correct them. That's the love of God. The Holy Spirit in our lives, calling you to live differently, calling you to repent, calling you to fellowship. And know God. Even though human beings are going crazy sinful, the Holy Spirit is still there telling you to turn away. That's the love of God. You are sinning, I am sinning. But the grace of God is that, despite our sinful ways, He calls to you to turn away. Basically, if you summarize all the sermons that I preached in the last five years, four years, it's basically love Christ by, by reading the Bible. That's what it is, right? That's basically what it is. And you hear, you will hear this message from me until the day I die or I leave here. I think death will come before, hopefully, that I leave. Every Sunday is a reminder that the Holy Spirit contends with you. Telling you to stop running away from Him, learn about Him, fellowship with Him, live differently. Every single week, it's a reminder. But God says, 
The Holy Spirit contending with you, contending with man, is not forever. He's going to limit it to 120 years. That's the expiration of a man's life. The Holy Spirit will not forever tell you to turn away and repent. That is not an indefinite offer. There is an expiration of the, to that offer. That offer either will happen when Christ comes back or when you die. You will not hear the message to repent over and over and over again forever. One day, it will be the last message. Look. One of the pastors I respect the most, Alistair Beck. I was listening to a sermon this week. His mom died when she was 46. You know how she died, he says? She wasn't sick. There wasn't an accident. They were home on a Sunday evening. And her mom says, hey, can you put the kettle on the fire? She said those words and she died. There was no sickness. There was no accident. It just happened. And he's saying, it is not a certain thing that you're going to live forever. It is not a certain thing that these offered to repent will be with you forever. You cannot assume that you have another tomorrow to accept this offer. God says, my spirit will contend with man as long as they live. But after they die, it will be no longer. Our attitude, oh, let me just get this money. Let me just succeed and then I'll live for God. That's a very dangerous assumption. Turning away from your sin, fellowshipping with God, knowing more about Him, is the call for you today. It's a call for you today. Because that's the love of God. We see the love of God in these passages. We also see the sorrow and grief of God. Right? Verse 6. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he grieved him to his heart. God is a God of emotion. God is not an indifferent spiritual being who who is devoid of emotion. That's not true. God is a God who feels. The reason why you and I feel is because we are made in the image of God. Our feelings indicate that we're made in His image. People tell me, people, the thing that I'm accused most about is that I'm very logical, that I don't feel things. People tell me I don't believe in feelings. That's stupid. Because whether I believe in feelings or not, it doesn't, whether I believe in feelings or not, the, the reality is, Feeling is part of the human existence. And the reason why it's a part of human existence is because we're made the image of God. Our feelings are fallen just like everything else, right? We, we, for example, we care more about our, our favorite fictional characters dying than actual people dying, right? We care more about, I don't know what your favorite thing is. We, we, we shed a tear when an animal character dies. We shed a tear when Luke Skywalker dies. We shed a tear when Dumbledore dies. Spoiler alert. We shed a tear when the Korean drama. But when young children are sold to sex trafficking, when people are dying on the streets, we do not shed tears for that. 
our feelings are messed up. But it doesn't mean they're not, it doesn't mean that our feelings are, are, are somehow inhumane. No, no, no. Our, we feel because God feels. And the Bible is clear, shows clear, clear evidences of, of sometimes God feels very rejoiced. Right? For example, I was reading like Matthew chapter 3 this week. My, I'm doing my quiet time in Matthew chapter 3. In the baptism of Jesus. And when Jesus was, got baptized by the, in the Jordan River by the, by the John the, what's, what's his name? John the, John the baptizer? Baptist, John the baptizer. John the Baptist, when Jesus, he was like getting baptized by John the Baptist, heavens open up and God says, this is my son whom I am so, I am well pleased. That means God was so proud of Jesus. The feeling of a proud father. Where's my son? I am so proud of that little guy. When you get A's in physics, huh? look at my son, so proud. When he's doing the cello, I am so proud. Why? Because I'm made in the image of God who is proud of his son. God feels. God is a personality who thinks, who plans, who feels. And how does he feel when people sin? He is sorry that he created them. He's grieving because of them. Feeling sorry because he created it doesn't mean, like, it doesn't mean, oh man, it doesn't mean that he made a mistake creating them. It's not an expression of regret because, you know, he didn't foresee this happening. Right? He's not saying, oh man, I just didn't know people were going to be that messed up. Stupid me. That's not what God is saying. God knows everything. God fully knew when he created us what we were going to do. But it doesn't mean that he doesn't feel sorrow when we sin. When you sin, you are grieving him. It's, the word grief here is a sense of sadness when you feel betrayed. If you want to see what this, what this feels like, I suggest researching people who have been betrayed by their spouses. As part of the counseling course when I disseminate, I was reading books about men and women who have been betrayed by their spouses. And if you read that book, the grief that people feel when their spouses betray them, it is so painful and raw. That's the grief that God feels when his people sin. Christian, when you watch those things that you should not watch, you are grieving the Holy Spirit, do you not know? When you nonchalantly go there, do these things, you are grieving the Holy Spirit. God sees the sin and destruction of man, and he is full of sorrow and grief, and he cries. Have you ever been like, have you ever cried when you truly, truly grieving something? I've had that one happen to me once. And this is how I cry. <gasps> I was so embarrassed, right? Like, like, like tears and like snot coming out of my, out of my nose. 
That rawness expression is the heart of God when his people sin. God's got to love, man. He's okay with me sinning. That is not true. And therefore, what does God do? Judgment. He will judge the earth. He will blot them out, God says. Blotting out means getting rid, destroying, so that the, the things that are destroyed will no longer be remembered. Totally, completely erasing you. Because the sin of men and women are so great. Because they are not repentant. Because they nonchalantly go about their lives as if their sin, there's nothing wrong with their sins. God says, I will blot out them from existence. I will erase you as if you never existed. You see, what, what is God's response to man's sin? There is a love he has. There's a sorrow that he feels. There's a judgment he's going to pass. But most importantly, there's a grace that he's going to show. Verse 8. One of the greatest verses in my opinion in the Bible. Verse 8. But Noah found favor in God's eyes. The world is falling apart in, a, in, in hell in a handbasket. But Noah He's going to blot out everyone but Noah. I almost think Caleb Noah, by the way, because I love this verse so much. But Noah. He's going to save Noah. Why is he going to save Noah? Is it because Noah was a, was a good guy? Because Noah's mom and dad went to church? Why did God decide to choose Noah? Because of grace. The word he found favor in God's sight, the word favor means grace. So basically verse 8 means God decided to save Noah because God is gracious. Because he chose that God. No reason whatsoever. Noah was just as sinful and crazy as, as the rest of them. But God decided to show his grace to Noah. What happened after God saved Noah? God chose Noah. Verse 9. Which we're going to talk about, I don't know, never probably. Verse 9. Noah was righteous and blameless before the Lord. Because God chose Noah, Noah was righteous. What does it mean for Noah to be righteous? It basically means Noah knew God was right. The word righteous means, it means many different things, right? It means the right, the right stand, standing with God. It means God declaring that you are, you are, you are on my side. And that's true. But another thing righteousness means is basically when you're righteous, you know God is right. Noah, because God showed his grace to him, knew God was right. How do you know? Hebrews chapter 11. It is by faith Noah built that ark. When Noah was building, how long did Noah take to build that ark? 100 years or something? Take a long time, right? For like a long time, he was building that ark. It was sunny like it's here. People were ridiculing him. People were mocking him. But Noah built the ark anyway. Why? Because Noah had faith in God, which means Noah knew God was right. And understanding that God was right led him to action. How do you know that you are righteous? 
If you know God is right, and if you live in accordance to the to the fact that God is right, and if you live in conformity to the rightness of God, that's how you know that you're a recipient of grace. Do you understand? God chose Noah because he was gracious, and because God chose Noah, Noah became righteous. Noah became on the right side, right, became on the right side of God, and Noah, and, and because of it, Noah knew God was right. Question is, do you know God is right? Is God right about you, your work, your relationships, your hobbies, what you watch, where you go? Is God right, or are you right? Everyone in Noah's time thought they were right. That's what Jesus says, right? They were giving on to marriage, drinking, as if nothing was wrong, because they didn't think what they're doing was wrong. Noah knew they were doing wrong because God was right. Do you know God is right? Look, I talked to people, and I asked them, basically, kind of direct of me, but I said, how do you know you're a Christian? Right? I, I asked during membership interviews. I asked during many different times. I go, how do you know you're a Christian? What's the evidence of your salvation? And the most common answer they gave me is, well, I turn to God when I need something. I was going through difficult times and I prayed to God and He delivered me. That's the most common answer that I listen to. And it is true, right? One of the ways that you know that you're a Christian is that you pray to Him and He delivers you. And it's true. I can't do anything apart from Him. Every single day, I really can't do anything apart from Him. So I pray for everything because I know that I need Him for everything. And that is certainly evidence of the fact that He's in your life. But merely talk, merely, merely praying to Him because you need something, that does not in and of itself make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is knowing and living as if God is right. Just like Noah. Is that you? Noah couldn't be that way on his own. Noah had the grace of God that transformed him to be that way. And that, what happened to Noah, is exactly what Paul is describing in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, just like people in Noah's day were slaves to sin, were following, were influenced by the devil and their flesh and the system of the world, we too were once dead to God, we too were influenced by the flesh of, of, uh, fleshly desires, we too were once influenced by the devil and the system of the world. It's true. We were once that way, Paul says in Ephesians 2. But God made us alive in Christ Jesus. We were like people in Noah's day, but it, but because of God's great love for Christ, He united us with Christ, and because we're united with Christ, we became righteous people who knew God was right, who knows God is right. Are you a Christian? The evidence of your Christian, Christian, the evidence of your salvation is if you know God is right. And not only do you know, you live, you live your life based upon the knowledge that he is right. What is influencing you? What is, which sermon, which messages are you listening to? The message of your flesh? 
the message of the devil and the world? Or can you say God is influencing you? If you cannot say God is influencing you, you are in big trouble. You're letting other things influence you. Before it's too late. Ask God to show you the grace that he showed Noah. To make you united with Christ. So that you will see God as who he is. So that you will be influenced by him. So that you can be the example of righteousness in this fallen world. Let's pray. The question we need to ask yourself is who are you being influenced by? What is influencing you? Please don't think that you are a reasonable person making wise choices on your own. It is a matter of who are, which, what you are, what you are being influenced by. Can you say God is influencing you? Can you say God is about, God is right about premarital sex? Can you say God is right about, 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 about pornography? Can you say God is right about your hatred towards fellow human being? Can you say right about God, about how you, how you view money? Is God right? Or are you right? People in Noah's time knew that they were right and God was wrong. And therefore they allowed the devil and their flesh to influence them all the days of their lives. Is that you? If it is, repent and ask God the grace that he showed Noah. You, so that you will be united with Christ. So that you will see God for who he is. Let us pray for ourselves.